Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and um, I should be updating that either today or tomorrow morning with some really interesting um, new stories. There's some visual things that obviously don't really work uh, looking or talking about them on the radio, and so you can always find me there. And you can also find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher. Um, you can find me on Spotify. Uh, you can find me on uh, Apple uh, Podcasts and all over the place. Um, and you can also find me uh, on the website evidencebasederrata.com. So we've been talking about Mars uh, for a fair amount lately. Um, and I hope you don't mind, because uh, I actually do have some more things to talk about when it comes to uh, the red planet. Now, uh, longtime listeners uh, will know that I am, I'm not sort of incredibly morally opposed in any way, but I'm, I'm generally opposed to the idea of human uh, space travel to especially someplace like Mars. Um, I think that we would do a lot better uh, using what we have been using already, which are the amazing rovers, landers, and satellites uh, to explore Mars. And I understand that people feel like going to Mars would be a great uh, sort of moonshot 2.0, um, even though technically going back to the moon is literally moonshot 2.0. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm sort of torn on that one because I know that people, uh, that the moon's a little easier to get to. It's a little less, um, you know, fraught than going to Mars. And we have successfully landed people on the moon before. So that's a little less, um, you know, of a no-go for me. But I just think that um, as much as people enjoy the sort of sexiness of astronauts going out into uh, space, I I feel torn because it costs a lot of money to do that. And it, uh, you know, it's potentially lives lost. And um, I think that the rovers and landers and the satellites are doing amazing work all by themselves. And I think that we should spend more of that time working on fixing our own planet rather than trying to go somewhere else. Um, especially since Mars is extremely inhospitable, no matter uh, how you try and cut it, it is not a fun place to be. And we will need to do a lot to be able to sustain people there for any amount of time. But let's talk about the good stuff. So uh, again, there are these amazing existing rovers already on the planet, and they will soon be joined uh, by the Mars 2020 rover. And so researchers are actually studying an area of the Martian surface that they would like the rover to explore. It's an area that shows minerals that researchers suspect prove that Mars once had explosive eruptions like Mount St. Helens, uh, rather than simply the more sedate lava flows uh, like one sees at Kilauea. This is one of the most tangible pieces of evidence yet for the idea that explosive volcanism was more common on early Mars, lead author Christopher Kremer, a graduate student in planetary science at Brown University, said in a statement. 
Understanding how important explosive volcanism was on early Mars is ultimately important to understand the water budget in Martian magma, groundwater abundance, and the thickness of the atmosphere. And so the team used images from our friendly Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, uh, which is really, really uh, a gangbuster that is, you know, sometimes forgotten about a little bit. And so they were looking at a region called Nili Fosse. And so luckily for them, the intended landing site for the Mars 2020 rover, which is the Jezero Crater, is located on the southeast edge of this region, near the border with a massive crater that the researchers think led to the Nili Fosse having a cracked appearance. So the area is actually rich in a mineral called olivine, which is really beautiful. It's this beautiful green stone. Um, and it's, but the thing about olivine is that it's actually usually more typically found in deep within the heart of a planet rather than on the surface. And so they also found examples of serpentine, which is another really beautiful stone, uh, and carbonate, which indicate the historical presence of water in the area. But it's that olivine that is exciting. It suggests that something big happened between 3.6 and 4 billion years ago in the area, which drove that olivine up from below the planet's surface. Now, volcanoes can erupt in one of two ways, either effusive eruptions, which have a lot of molten rock explosive eruptions uh, or that have a lot of molten rock. And so those are the kind of um, things more like you see in Hawaii, where there's this oozing molten rock everywhere. Or you can have explosive eruptions, which feature more ash and are driven by gas buildups inside of the volcano, which is that Mount St. Helens kind of um, very um, kinetic, very um, explosive kind of um, volcanic eruption. And usually uh, features more pyroclastic flows and things like that, which are those buildups of um, superheated uh, gases. And so the researchers used data from different instruments on the reconnaissance orbiter and measured the thickness of the olivine rich layers, which were found to be of a consistent depth, regardless of where they were. This suggests an ash layer because more molten rock would have layered the area differently depending on gravity. Uh, and so basically, if you think about it, you know, you've got molten lava, it sort of flows in a different way than if you just have ash that just drops on everything. This work departed methodologically from what other folks have done by looking at the physical shape of the terrains that are composed of this bedrock, Kremer said. What's the geometry, the thickness and orientation of the layers that make it up? We found that the explosive volcanism and ashfall explanation ticks all the right boxes, while all of the alternative ideas for what this deposit might be disagreed in several important respects with what we observe from orbit. And so, of course, that's where the Mars 2020 orbiter comes in. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's coming along, actually. Uh, they were just putting the wheels on it the other day, I think I read. So uh, I'm very excited about the Mars 2020 rover. Not that I'm not excited about the rover that is still doing work up there. Um, and so it's going to be very exciting. Now, hopefully, it will be able to spend some time really examining that olivine close up. 
What's exciting is that we'll see very soon if I'm right or wrong, Kremer said. So that's a little nerve-wracking, but if it's not an ash fall, it's probably going to be something much stranger. That's just as fun, if not more so. Um, which I think is a great attitude because it's a really great attitude for scientists to have. And I think it's one that people don't really think about a lot, which is that, um, you know, people have this idea that scientists are just out there saying, this is what's right. And, um, you know, I have facts to back it up. And it's like a lot of scientists are okay. Most scientists, I mean, all scientists should be, but most scientists are to at least some extent okay with being wrong because that means that there's something else that you've missed, which means you have more things to investigate. Um, because of course science is a moving target. It is not a monolithic thing. And, um, you know, I think some people think that that's what makes science, uh, unreliable, but I think that's what makes science completely reliable because people aren't just saying this is the way things are. They're looking for ways to see if what they're seeing is right or is wrong. So yeah, but, um, yeah. And again, that Mars reconnaissance orbiter is doing amazing work and so it has actually just found a fresh crater and it took a beautiful new image, which I will post to the Facebook page, um, of this crater. And of course that there's a picture in false color, but it's, um, it's just really beautiful. And so it used our old friend, the high rise or high resolution imaging science experiment to take a picture of the crater. Uh, it was actually taken back on April 17th from an altitude of 158 miles above the surface. The crater is located in Valles Marineris, um, and so it is near the equator, and it's fresh. It would have formed sometime between September 2016 and February 2019. So again, uh, that false image false color image is really impressive. I mean, even just the crater itself is impressive, but when you get the image, it, they do, um, a lot of the, um, images you see from astronomical images have false colors in them because it shows you the different, um, compositions of the different layers. And also, um, if you're seeing pictures from space, it shows you the different, uh, compositions of the, um, gas and things like that, that are out there. And, um, so it's really, it's just a gorgeous picture and the crater is about 50 feet wide with the dark splotch around the actual crater measuring over 1600 feet. The meteorite that made the crater was probably around five feet wide and solid. So if you think about that, it made a crater about 50 feet, but it was only probably around five feet. Um, so it was probably only around, uh, as tall as uh, tall as I am and, um, or it's width was about how tall I am. So, um, that's kind of crazy to me, but it probably wouldn't have survived entry into the earth's, uh, more dense atmosphere. But of course, one of the things about Mars is that it has a much thinner atmosphere. And so the MRO has found other craters. Uh, it found one in 2014 and then another in 2018. Um, and it's, of course, been working hard since 2006. Uh, because like everything else that NASA builds and actually makes it where it's going, uh, it has continued its mission far past when it was supposed to uh, be decommissioned. Now, of course, Mars is very cool, and I very much enjoy having all sorts of little robots and satellites uh, 
working there. But NASA just announced a way more exciting mission. Um, unfortunately, we're going to have to wait a while, so don't get too excited. Um, but a tiny aerial drone called Dragonfly will be sent to Saturn's moon Titan. Now, Titan is just a totally wild place. It has oily black seas. It has a hazy golden atmosphere. It has electrically charged sands. It has all sorts of crazy things. So this project won out over the CSER, or Comet Astrobiology Exploration Sample Return, uh, which is a mission, would have been a mission to Comet 67P. Uh, but we've talked about that not so long ago because uh, ESA's Rosetta spacecraft actually went past that. And um, also there has been a previous NASA um, uh, mission that took samples from another comet. And so um, that's, it would have been interesting, but it's a little bit old hat, whereas going to Titan is super, super fun and exciting. And we can do a lot of very new things doing that. So I'm really glad that they picked Dragonfly over Caesar. And so um, the reason for that is because the funding came from um, the New Frontiers Initiative, which funds projects that should have a budget under $1 billion. Uh, and so the two projects were the finalists from an initial pool of 12 proposals. And actually, um, one of the other uh, one of the other projects that was funded through that fund is actually the um, it was actually the mission to Pluto. And so all of that wonderful stuff was done from the uh, New Frontiers Initiative. Sorry, I am completely blanking on the name of that uh, craft that went to Pluto. I can't, I, I talked about it for so long and now I can't remember what it was called. Oh dear. But anyways, you, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> And so Dragonfly will be a dual quad rotor drone, and it's designed by researchers at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. And so what's really cool about the drone is that it will be able to traverse the moon's terrain, uh, taking measurements and observations, and um, it should be able to cover much more territory than a rover would. Now, Titan has a dense nitrogen-heavy atmosphere. And in fact, it's the only moon in the solar system with a true atmosphere. Um, but that shouldn't have a big effect on the drone. It should really be able to zip around in that atmosphere. Now, Titan has other features that are more comparable to Earth, including liquid oceans, uh, though those oceans are actually made from liquid methane rather than water. Uh, there are lakes and rivers also of liquid methane. Uh, there are huge cannons. Or, sorry, canyons, uh, and it might even have some liquid water. Of course, it also has some serious differences, uh, which the drone will have to deal with, including uh, temperatures as low as negative 300 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so yeah, it can get real cold there, which is why, of course, you can have liquid um, methane, because it's real cold. It also has intense dust storms and rainstorms, of course, methane rain, uh, rather than water. And so, yeah. And again, like most of these missions, Dragonfly will look for signs that Titan might once have harbored life. Titan features 
thick carbon-rich materials that once would have been in contact with liquid water and might have once had uh, once might have once featured primordial primordial goop, uh, which of course could have been a site for primordial life. Now, um, it used to be we sort of thought that uh, life on Earth arrived arose from this sort of primordial goo. Um, more recent uh, theories more suspect that it would have been around um, a uh, black smoker or um, the sort of deep sea um, seeps that are uh, associated with the deep ocean. Um, but it could also have been this sort of just goop of carbon rich materials and water and uh, things like that. And so um, there could have been uh, primitive uh, life at some point, theoretically at least. So Dragonfly will have a mass spectrometer, a gamma ray spectrometer, a camera that will feature both the ability to take microscopic and panoramic images, along with other instruments to detect the amazing chemistry and terrains of Titan, which is totally amazing. Um, and so, yeah, NASA scientists hope to land the probe near a series of sand dunes and then move towards a large crater, the Selk Impact Crater, which might have once again held that liquid water and complex organics. Now, again, uh, we have to remember that this is going to take some time. Now, the initial mission is scheduled for around two and a half years and will involve around 25 hops, uh, which will amount to around 110 miles of coverage of the uh, moon. But again, as cool as this is, the plan is to launch around 2026. But of course, because Titan's very far away, uh, the drone wouldn't reach it until around 2034. So, of course, we do have a bit to go before we get there. But of course, we had to wait a long time to see those amazing pictures of Pluto. We've had to wait a long time for other things. And so I think it'll just be amazing once we get that imagery and get that data back from Titan, because Titan is definitely one of those sort of uh, places that if you asked a lot of astronomers and a lot of scientists where they would like to go to do research, uh, if they could go anywhere in the solar system, I think a lot of people would pick Titan. So yeah, it's very exciting. All right. So let us completely, completely change subjects now. <laughs> and uh, we are now going to talk about seals and uh, language acquisition. <laughs> so you may have heard about this, uh, but if you didn't, uh, there is a uh, new story out about seals that have been taught to uh, sing melodies. Now, of course, you might not know, um, though you might if you're a long-term uh, resident of the area, that this has a uh, local connection, which we will talk about after uh, the initial story. And so researchers at the University of St. Andrews taught three gray seals how to replicate human vowel sounds. And uh, one of the seals actually became very proficient and learned how to 
uh, sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star uh, and the melody to Star Wars. And so three juvenile seals, gray seals, Gandalf, a male, and Zola and Janice, two females, were born on the island of May and brought to the marine mammal facility at the university and began their training soon after they arrived. Now, they were trained for a full year before being released back into the wild. And while training, they were actually able to interact with other seals at the facility, so they weren't uh, cordoned off in any way, shape, or form. The research was led by Amanda Stansbury and Vincent Janik from the Scottish Oceans Institute. The anatomical structures used for producing vocalizations such as the vocal cord, larynx, and mouth cavities are the same for seals and humans, uh, Janik noted. Other vocal learners use different structures. Birds, for example, do not have a larynx, but a different structure called a, a syrinx to produce sounds. Dolphins use muscles in their nasal air passages to produce learned sounds. Now, the researchers were investigating the ability of the seals to produce by their vocal tract uh, sounds that enabled us to, to make vowel sounds. Now, the seals were able to mimic some human speech sounds and to generate sounds that are outside their normal vocal range, which are more similar to humans. We first taught them to produce their own seal sounds in response to our training signals, said Janik. We then changed those sounds in the computer to create different pitches and melodies. Once they succeeded in copying these tunes, we presented vowels spoken by a human and transferred to an easier frequency band for the animal. Now, Zola proved to be a star and was able to copy those melodies uh, with up to 10 notes. Janice and Gandalf were able to replicate human vowel sounds with all, all of the human vowel sounds. So A-E-I-O-U, um, all three of them were able to do that. Now, of course, this is fun and interesting, uh, but it actually had a deeper purpose. The researchers are looking into how animals other than humans might use vocal learning and communication. The vocal learning abilities of seals had not been explored before, said Yannick. One of the next questions is how they use this skill in their own communication. It hints at a more complex communication system than what was assumed for seals before. And of course, it can potentially help in seal conservation. Knowing how seals use sound, it is important to assess how they are affected by noise created by human activities, such as shipping or marine construction, he explained. This in turn will help us manage wild populations more carefully. So that is very important because we know that there is a lot of sound pollution in the ocean at this point, and uh, there's been some real arguments, some real knockout, dragout fights about uh, sonar, for instance, and its uh, impact on pinnipeds and on whales. And um, so that's that's still kind of an active fight. Um, a lot of people who study whales and other um, mammals in the oceans, especially animal and use animals that use, um, sonar are themselves are really worried about this artificial sonar being basically noise pollution that actually hurts marine animals. Um, but again, that's kind of a, that's a, that's a whole turmoil that's been going on for many years and doesn't seem to be 
uh, ready to let up anytime soon because, of course, sonar is incredibly useful. Um, and so, of course, humans don't want to stop using it. Okay, so... Like I said, there is a local connection. Apparently, and I didn't know about this, uh, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, there was a seal at the New England Aquarium that could talk. Now, again, of course, probably didn't understand what he was saying, uh, almost certainly didn't understand what he was saying, but uh, Hoover, the talking seal, uh, was quite the local celebrity. Uh, he was a harbor seal rescued as a pup by Maine residents George and Alice Swallow in Cundy's Harbor uh, initially, and then uh, eventually he moved on to the aquarium. And so the swallows kept him first in a bathtub uh, and then in a tent in the backyard. Uh, but of course, he continued to grow and was eating much more food as he grew, uh, hence the name Hoover, uh, because he would hoover up all of the food. Uh, they realized, of course, that he would probably be better off in a better facility that could take care of him um, and his, you know, needs. <laughs> now, again, no reason to suspect that he actually knew what he was saying, uh, but he was really good at mimicking the voice of uh, his ostensible father. And so he was able to say several phrases in a heavy Maine accent, such as, hello there, get over here, and hello, Hoover. <laughs> and so the researchers who first met him didn't really believe that he was actually speaking. They just thought it was some sort of like, you know, uh, vocal uh, version of periodolia. But um, I'm sure there's an actual word for that, but I don't know it offhand. Um, but then they met uh, George Swallow and realized that Hoover had a distinct Maine accent. <laughs> and so when Hoover died, he even got his own obituary in the Boston Globe. He also had many offspring, and at least one of them, uh, Chakota, followed in his footsteps as a mimic. So I'm just going to play a tiny little clip here. It's only a few seconds long. And uh, so I will tell you what he's saying after I play it. And then I'll play it a second time. So hang on for just a second. So supposedly, and I, I do hear it. Um, he says, Hoover, get over here. Come on, come on. So let me play it for you one more time. Then, of course, just some regular seal sounds at the end there. So pretty remarkable. Um, <laughs> pretty darn remarkable. And so, um, yeah, it seems like he really did have a way with mimicking human sounds. All right. And so that actually takes us to our halfway point in the evening. So we're going to play some PSAs and we will be back in a moment. And we're going to talk about um, the sea, a creature of the sea for one more story, and then we'll move on. So hang on for just a second. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. 
Has anyone ever asked you? Don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic, host of OK Asia, a program with a wide selection of Asian artists. I like to combine genres from rock, pop, hip-hop, Bollywood, and R&B. So please join me every Saturday from 12 to 2 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. Spring and summer are prime time for ticks that can spread Lyme disease and other infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would like to remind you to wear bug repellent when outdoors, shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check your whole body for ticks every day. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. STDs often have no symptoms, but if left untreated, they can lead to serious health problems, especially for young women. Every year in the U.S., about 24,000 women become infertile from untreated STDs, which means they may never be able to have kids. It's important to get tested regularly. All STDs are treatable. Many are curable. GYT, get yourself tested. Go to GYTnow.org to find a testing center near you. A message from CDC. It's easy to take your world for granted. Most days go by without a whole lot of surprises. But what if a disaster strikes without warning? What if life as you know it has completely turned on its head? What if everything familiar becomes anything but? Would you be prepared? Before a disaster turns your family's world upside down, it's up to you to be ready. Get a kit. Make a plan. Be informed. Today. Learn how at www.ready.gov. Ready.gov. This message brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency and the Ad Council. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage blindness, heart attack, stroke, and you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, we are back. And we are going to, like I said, stick with the ocean. And we're going to talk about an odd skull that has been hanging out in a museum uh, for a while and has finally been confirmed uh, to be a narwhal beluga hybrid, uh, which is, of course, 
odd. <laughs> so the skull was actually given to the museum by subsistence hunters in Greenland uh, back in 1990. Now, they described the animal as rather strange, uh, evenly gray with flippers like a beluga, but a tail like a narwhal. And so the skull also had aspects of both animals. So now scientists have confirmed that the skull was indeed the first recorded hybrid of these two species. This is a one-off individual that tickles our scientific and childhood curiosity towards nature, the study's first author, Mikkel Skovrend, uh, from the Natural History Museum of Denmark at the University of Copenhagen, uh, noted. That's why it's interesting. Now, Skovrend was doing his PhD in beluga whale genomics, and his office was basically located right next to a collection of skulls of beluga and narwhals, and it included this skull. And of course, he thought it looked odd. Uh, it actually had teeth splayed outward, which is not like those of a normal beluga. Um, and of course, it doesn't have the single large tooth uh, construction of a narwhal. And so it had actually obviously always been suspected to be a hybrid. So that's not a revelation. Um, but what they did was that they actually did the uh, genetic testing. And so uh, he notes that it ticked all of the boxes for a project I wanted to spend time on. Uh, and so he worked with lead scientist Aline Lorenzen to extract to extract DNA from the teeth and from tissue samples from eight belugas and eight narwhals taken from West Greenland's Disco Bay. And so they found that the animal would have been the offspring of a male beluga and a uh, female narwhal. And so the, the animal actually seems to have been healthy uh, because it certainly reached maturity uh, before being caught by the hunters. The skull was full-sized and, um, you know, the animal didn't seem to have any issues. The hunters seemed to have caught it kind of fair and square um, in an actual hunt. And so uh, that's not always the case for hybrids. Uh, part of the problem with hybrids uh, is the idea that if you have a lot of hybrids that are being produced that are infertile, that can actually hurt the numbers of the uh, sort of parent groups. But again, this seems to be a very rare one-off, and it was also apparently very healthy. Um, no idea of whether or not it would have been um, able to reproduce, but it doesn't seem to be a big issue. Now, of course, we don't know exactly how it happened, uh, but both belugas and narwhal are found year-round in the area of Disco Bay, and both mate in the spring when the ice starts to break up. And so both species have also been observed as visitors in pods of the others. So you'd have a pod of belugas and there'd be a couple of narwhals hanging out, uh, and vice versa. Now, Again, uh, hybridization is actually rather common in cetaceans, uh, but the fact that both animals are social and thus have uh, potentially some sort of meat selection process uh, makes it confusing because that must have short-circuited somehow. Uh, and so Scovrand is interested in seeing if there are other hybrids out there and so uh, is planning on continuing to research the DNA of both animals. 
So it's just an interesting little tidbit. It's another one of those stories about uh, something that's been sitting on a shelf in a museum and finally someone uh, gets the chance to uh, look at it because a lot of these things, it's not like they've been neglected on purpose. It's because there is a lot of stuff out there and uh, researchers are doing a lot of things, including writing a lot of uh, perspectives uh, and grant uh, requests because, uh, you know, basically scientists in a lot of ways are almost like politicians that they're constantly having to be worrying about raising money uh, rather than doing what they really want to be doing, um, which is, of course, an incredible shame, but that's kind of how it is. Um, but anyways, uh, DNA is, of course, the way in which we can see how plants and animals and other living beings are constructed by reading the unique code of the nucleotides, uh, A, C, G, and T. Now, it's often, uh, fairly erroneously, uh, been compared to human writing. And of course, there are superficial similarities. However, the fundamental difference is, of course, in agency. DNA is created through natural processes that are not guided by any mind or intellect, whereas human writing is the inevitable product of a human mind or an AI. But we'll talk about artificial intelligences later. Um, and so, uh, as I've mentioned in recent episodes, uh, a lot of what has been written in the past has been lost. Uh, it's kind of mind boggling to think about how much knowledge and creative work by our ancestors has been lost to the ravages of time. I mean, just think of how much has been lost to the ravages in the modern world of, uh, you know, somebody drops their computer, somebody's uh, hard drive gets fried, um, you know, how many people have lost entire screenplays and novels and things based on modern technology. Um, well, think about the fact that, you know, in ancient times, people were writing on things like papyrus and uh, on sheepskin, which they often uh, would reuse. So you would just scrape off the old uh, manuscript and rewrite a new manuscript right on that same piece of uh, of parchment. But that's actually good for us uh, because it turns out that uh, technology has come far enough that we can actually recover some of that human writing that we once thought was lost. And so we've talked about some of this before, but earlier this year, researchers from the Rochester Institute of Technology brought a megavision multispectral imaging system to the city of Dubrovnik in Croatia. Now, this 13th century uh, city, the, uh, the walls of this 13th century city have actually been used uh, for the filming of Game of Thrones, for instance. Um, but it also ends up having a store of around 30,000 medieval manuscripts. Uh, and this is according to David Messenger, who heads up the project for RIT's Center for Imaging Science. We have a campus over there, he notes. So this was like a first contract workshop to show them in a hands-on way what the tech could do. And so multispectral systems that are uh, are basically very advanced digital cameras. They can detect light outside of the visible wavelength. And so this system uses 50 megapixel sensors and a computer controlled camera with LED, with an LED lighting system to take photos in ultraviolet, infrared, and the visible spectra in order to find traces of different pigments left on the manuscripts. 
It is this kind of fluorescence imaging that can reveal the presence of ink even if it is scraped away because those are because those areas suppress the fluorescent, said Messenger. And so these sorts of systems have already been doing work helping scholars decipher the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, they've revealed words that Thomas Jefferson erased and changed on an original draft of the Declaration of Independence. They've foiled forgeries and found a palimpsest of a manuscript of Archimedes' principles that had been overwritten by a Christian prayer book. And so a megavision system is currently in use at the Mar Saba Monastery in the Sinai Peninsula, where researchers are discovering texts dating back to the 4th century that have never before been read by modern scholars. Of course, rather eye-rollingly, uh, Messenger's team was able to find hidden texts in Croatia, but no one on his team actually reads Latin, and of course they were mostly in Latin, so they don't actually know if they found anything of importance yet. Uh, the work is apparently more of a sales pitch to the Croatian government, uh, but it's not a waste. Uh, the technology will currently extremely expensive at around $75,000 uh, as a base price um, is you know, it's very, very impressive, even though it has a very impressive price tag. Uh, it's not only able to find hidden texts, but also can help with authentication and dating that is non-destructive by determining the composition of the ink or pigments used. Um, because of course, usually you carbon date things and that requires um, it to be, uh, you have to sort of burn up the little bit that you use. And even if you're just using a tiny um, piece of a parchment, it's still destructive nonetheless. And of course, the images form a digital database that will, of course, be able to be accessed by scholars in the future, which means that these um, very fragile manuscripts won't have to be handled themselves. They can have these really impressive, very high resolution um, images in order for researchers to uh, examine. And of course, the hope is that, as with most technology, the systems will become smaller and cheaper and will become more widely available so that more ancient works might be rediscovered, even after they have been scraped off of their original vellum, erased, or used as binder in producing newer books, because many of these fragments are actually found in the bindings of books from later periods. And of course, this is just an easy example of the kinds of high-tech detective work that computers and AI are able to do. And so now let's talk about AI for a few minutes. Adobe is currently working with researchers at UC Berkeley to train a neural network to help them figure out when an image has been manipulated with their own uh, face-aware liquify tool in Photoshop, um, which allows people to uh, change someone's eyes, nose, mouth, or their entire face relatively simply. Um, so yes, Adobe is trying to uh, devise a program to uh, suss out when their own program has been used, which I think is very funny, um, but also it's very helpful. And so the hope is obviously to help combat fake news and other harmful uses of such technology. The researchers trained a neural network on a series of before and after pictures that had been automatically edited using the FAL tool, as well as a set of headshots that had been manipulated by an actual artist using the same tool. The team actually began by testing how good humans were at detecting manipulation. 
Unfortunately, the answer was, we're pretty bad at it. People recognize just 53% of manipulations, which is just over the line from pure chance. Uh, and so the AI, on the other hand, was actually able to spot the changes 99% of the time. It was even able to undo the changes and revert them to the original image. And so this is a seriously good start to being to begin deploying tools that will make it harder for bad actors to create deliberately faked materials. But of course, it's just a start. There are lots of other ways in Photoshop to change an image that are not yet detectable by this particular program, but it's important that we start to find ways to combat the proliferation of fake images and videos that currently plague the internet. Now, AI can also be useful for jobs that are just frankly tedious and maybe a little dangerous. So using Google Street View, geospatial scientists at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia, programmed an AI to recognize and identify specific street signage. And so the program can recognize signs with 96% accuracy and identify the type of sign with 98% accuracy. Using only 2D images and metadata from Google Maps and Street View, it is able to catalog the geolocation of each sign so that it will be easy to track down if, in turn, if it turns out to need repair. Now, of course, roads are constantly being updated, uh, but if other means were added, such as one of the things they suggested would you could put a camera on a garbage truck that obviously patrols the same area each week, and then you could help update uh, the maps with that imagery. And of course, you know, people always sort of worry about these things becoming uh, very big brothery and that sort of thing. But honestly, right now, that's using publicly available uh, images that are already out there um, and that people can already use for nefarious reasons if they really want to. Um, I know that I spend a lot of time looking at Google Maps, but I'm usually looking for things to take pictures of, <laughs> um, like water towers, because I'm weird and I really like taking pictures of water towers. Um, it's always best when Google has been through there in the afternoon so you can see the shadow very clearly. <laughs> okay, but of course, there's always that one story about some sort of creepy AI. This one's slightly creepy. It's not actually that bad and the neural network isn't that good at it. So that makes it better um, because it hasn't really worked out how to do this with real accuracy. Um, but you've probably heard uh, this story, which is that a neural network called speech to face was trained uh, by watching millions of educational videos from the internet, uh, specifically from YouTube of over 100,000 different people talking. And so then what it did was it created a database where it looked for associations between certain vocal cues and certain physical features in a human face. The researchers then had the AI create photorealistic faces to match voices. Now, of course, this sounds crazy uh, that you could tell what a person looks like by their voice, but some of the faces are actually rather close to the photos of the actual people. Now, the AI is not actually able to recreate a person's specific face. Rather, it's able to judge general characteristics like age ranges, ethnicities, and gender of the individual. And even then, it had, again, mixed results. For instance, it had trouble with people speaking different languages. Um, when an Asian man spoke Chinese, the program produced an Asian-looking face. 
When the same man spoke English, the AI produced a Caucasian face. And of course, because the samples were from YouTube, there was an obvious bias to the samples. And of course, in a rather weird and sort of funny wrinkle, <coughs> one of the people featured in the study was actually surprised to find himself represented in that data set. Apparently, the researchers believed that the videos were available for research without getting further permissions. Uh, but this particular person, who just happens to be the head of cryptography with an internet security company, wasn't so sure that he felt that that was right. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that he's going to sue them or anything. I just think he was rather shocked to say, to, to you know, see the stories about this and see the pictures provided and be like, wait a second, that's me. How did they get me? <laughs> so yeah, very interesting. Okay, so um, that is slightly creepy AI. Like I said, it's not good enough yet to be truly creepy. Um, but at the moment, it's still kind of creepy. Like some of those pictures looked kind of close. Um, so yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's switch gears again for our final story tonight, which is about the Nazca Lines. Now, of course, the Nazca Lines have constantly been a subject of all sorts of speculation. They're often uh, called up as supposed evidence of aliens or secret ancient technologies, all sorts of craziness. Because, of course, ostensibly, they're only able to be seen from the air. Of course, it turns out uh, very prosaically that many of them can be seen from nearby hills, and early petroglyphs were actually created on hillsides viewable from the plain. Now, we know for certain that the pre-Incan Nazca people were a vibrant and highly organized culture. They left behind enormous temple complexes, large burial sites, and beautiful pottery. And so, you know, these people were doing it themselves, is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, it's extremely easy to build one of these petroglyphs. Um, I've seen people do... Um, you know, experimental archaeology recreations. Uh, basically, the Nazca Plain is this really, really flat desert where there is um, sort of oxidized uh, rocks on top of uh, more sandy colored um, base sort of desert plateau. And so basically all you do is you take the red oxidized rocks and you push them aside and you create a little channel between two sets of those rocks and then you have a line <laughs> it's very simple uh it doesn't take any advanced technology literally you can just go out there with your hands and move them aside um the other thing you want to do is uh you want to use uh ropes so you can get some sticks and some ropes and you just use that as a measuring tool and you follow a uh, diagram and you just tell the person, you know, keep going for eight feet and then stop and then turn here and go over here. And like, it's very simple. You can even do the, the sort of uh, circular features by having a stick in the middle and then you just keep the rope taunt at a certain, uh, you know, diameter and you just, uh, or radius, I should say, and then you just keep moving around very easy to do doesn't require any kind of uh doesn't require aliens in any way shape or form 
very easy, but also incredibly cool. And like, it definitely shows a people who were very, very, very uh, creative and very uh, advanced, but no aliens. <laughs> so it turns out that two of the petroglyphs, uh, one identified as a hummingbird, are actually non-local birds. One is a hermit, which is actually a forest species, and the other is a pelican, which is, of course, a coastal denizen. And so this is according to a new study in the Journal of Archaeological Science reports by co-authors Masaki Ida, a zooarchaeologist at the Hokkaido University Museum in Japan, and Masato Sakai, an expert in the lines from Yamagata University. And so Edis was working to identify bird bones at a nearby archaeological site in the Nazca Desert when he became interested in studying the lines themselves from a biological perspective. I believe that the motifs of the animal glyphs are closely related to the purpose of why they were etched, Ida told Live Science. So they looked at the 16 bird etchings from an, ornitho from an ornithologist's perspective. And they were able to identify three birds with confidence. This includes realizing that the hummingbird was in fact a subspecies called a hermit, which lives in the forests of eastern and northern Peru, but not in this southern desert. The second was the coastal pelican, and the third is a guano bird, which is still important in Peru today. Now, of course, guano is a whole story. Um, if you don't know about the Great Guano Wars, uh, I highly recommend reading about it because it's both terrible and fascinating and just, it's, it's crazy. Um, guano was a huge commodity in the uh, late 18th and early 19th century, and huge wars were fought over it. It's, it's crazy. Um, so the next step for these researchers is to compare representations of the birds at temple sites and on pottery to try and discern why these particular species were important to the Nazca people. Now, the work is ongoing, but they've also, they've already found some interesting differences. So there are different differences in the representation between the birds that are on the plains, the birds that are in these temple sites, and on the pottery. So it'll be really interesting to see if they can really draw any kind of conclusions from that information. And again, if you don't know about the Nazca as a people, I highly recommend looking into them because they were a really fascinating people in and of themselves. Their pottery is really dynamic. Um, it's very... Um, uh, multi-chromatic. They did a lot of painting and it's on this sort of very dark, um, dark sort of coppery colored uh, pottery. And it's very beautiful and very interesting. And they were clearly a very advanced people. Um, and of course, you know, the ancestors and the Inca. All right. So that is all the time I have for tonight. I do hope that you enjoyed and I do hope you stay stay tuned uh, for civil politics coming up next. I believe they'll be talking about uh, the democratic debates that happened in the last couple of days. So uh, do definitely stay tuned for that. And thank you as always for listening to Evidence Based. Good night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro and thank you for listening.